If you grow up in a small town, over time you realize that different places in that town mean different things to you at different stages in your life. We often drive by where the old burger chef used to be. And I remember as a uh, four or five-year-old eating my first fast food hamburger there and thinking about, uh, you know, this is amazing. You can go out and you can buy food and they give it to you on a plate. And I remember for breakfast, the, the first jelly donut that I have there. But that place eventually became a Hardee's and the people who locally ran it were, you know, they were out of business. And then there's a Hardee's that we used to go to after church on Wednesday night. And now it's a drugstore. We drive by that place and I think about those different phases throughout my life. There's the the football field that's right next to my grandparents' house that me and my friends used to sneak on because the coach would lock the the gates and you weren't supposed to play over there and we would hop the fence at night and play tackle football there. And eventually that was, uh, you know, on Friday nights, high school football's going on. We would play behind the stadium there, behind the stadium seating. We would play tackle football and we'd go home with stitches and cuts on my face. And eventually that's the place where I I played football. But at different stages in my life, that place meant certain things. There's the place, uh, New Lake. We have an old lake and a new lake in Lewisburg. And that's, you know, that's very creative. Uh, Old Lake and New Lake. And when I was young, my uncle took me there. I caught my first fish ever at New Lake. It was a little brim on my Snoopy fishing pole. But yet, a few, several years later, that became the place where, again, me and my friends, we would sneak out at night and we would go to New Lake and do all kinds of, of awful bad things that we shouldn't be doing. But then just a few years ago, I took my kids to New Lake and we're, we're, we're fishing or we couldn't fish that day. It was too hot, but we're walking around New Lake and that place has, has meant different things to me at different times in my life. There's the old armory where I used to go watch pro wrestling. Uh, in you know, small towns, that's what happens. You know, they, there's those things that go on there. But I used to go watch pro wrestling at the army armory. And then there's uh, a time where in the life I was involved in my life where I was involved in a church plant and we rented that place out to have church. And so at different stages in my life, that one place has meant certain things. There's the courthouse where I remember when I was in elementary school going on field trips there. And then I remember as a 17 year old going there for speeding tickets having to get out of that and all sorts of different spots in different places that mean different things there's my grandmother's living room where I walk in and I never will forget the moment that I sat down on that couch and realized my parents were getting a divorce and I was going to be living there for much of my teenage life and yet that same living room Thanksgiving and Christmas, teams with all kinds of children from extended dysfunctional families that that join on Thanksgiving because of even that one moment, the spread of our family. And that one spot means different things at different times in your life. These places in the Bible, these spots God brings us to, places of defeat, places of destruction, places of despair. He often brings us back to those same spots and makes them places of 
redemption. And we see that in Numbers chapter 21 when we begin here, the verses we just read, there is this Canaanite king who hears Israel is coming. And we saw as we read, what does he do? He comes out, verse 1, and he fights against Israel. Now, when we, we know our Bibles, we know the story, we hear Canaanites, that's never a good thing. And just a few chapters ago in Numbers 14, the Canaanites have wiped Israel out. And here they, they hear that they're coming. And instead of being passive, they go on the attack of Israel. And you can only imagine, we've already beat them once. We've already defeated them. We're going to wipe them out before they get any closer. And they fight against Israel. And notice the text says, and took some of them captive. Now, this is a reminder of Egypt. And we hear this and we begin to think, well, this is another defeat. This is another roadblock on the way to the promised land. This isn't going to end good for Israel. But notice what Israel does this time. Instead of moaning, instead of groaning, instead of whining and complaining, notice Israel vowed a vow to the Lord. The, the terminology here is this trust and this dependence on the Lord. And notice how they fight the battle this time. In Numbers 14, they charged out without the presence of the Lord and they are destroyed. They are defeated. And yet here, notice how they respond to adversity. They pray to the Lord, and notice the text begins to communicate Israel as a person, as a collective unit, is referred to here in the singular. And before, we have Moses and Aaron that are interceding on behalf of the people. And here, it's, it's Israel is communicated, speaking to the Lord himself, making a vow and saying, if you will give this people into my hand, I will devote. Now, that word devote there is an act of worship. Here, the nation of Israel is saying, God, if you are with us, we will worship. How? By devoting their cities to destruction. As an act of worship, we will wipe these people out. Because we know you have given us the land. And we will trust you on the way to the land. And as we spear these people to death, as we take the sword, and notice the text says, destroy their cities, these fortified cities. We will trust that you have given them to us, and we will wipe them out as an act of worship. And the text says, the Lord heeded the voice of Israel. Notice how this story is changing. The people are whining, the people are complaining, the people are fighting against the Lord and Moses, and now they are praying to the Lord. And what is the Lord doing? Listening to his son Israel. Instead of this self-centered brat whining and complaining, he is trusting his father and his father is taking care of him. And notice he heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites. And again, the same word, they devote it as an act of worship, the cities to destruction so that the name of the place was called Hormah, which means destruction. Now in Numbers 14, 
the enemies of the Lord, the Canaanites chase Israel all the way back to where? Hormah. And this place of defeat, this place of destruction for the Israelites has now been redeemed as they experience victory. And we see the people, that their, their victory is dependent on their trust and their devotion in the Lord. Notice they are praying, they are depending on Him. And as we talked about earlier in Numbers, the tabernacle, the place of worship, basically was a warcraft carrier through the wilderness. You had soldiers who were worshiping and trusting the Lord as they display their trust in worship in the tabernacle. It moves through the wilderness. It moves toward the promised land. And here there's a foretaste of what's to come as they will inherit the land as this place, Hormah, this place of defeat becomes a place of victory and redemption. We see the same sort of trust and devotion In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he walks into a familiar scene. Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are found where? In a garden. And the snake comes out. And they don't trust the Lord. They trust the voice of the snake. And yet we find Jesus in a garden. And what do the enemies of God do to him? They come out and they take him captive. And he is sold and he is enslaved and he is carried to a bloody cross. And what does he do in this place of defeat? He trusts the Lord and he says, not my will, but thy will be done. What is he communicating here? I am giving my life over as an act of worship. My body will be crushed as a fragrant aroma. I am going to war against the enemies of God as they take me captive. I am going to battle out of devotion, even if it meant his own destruction. And that garden becomes a place of redemption for us. Many of us come in here today and we think about these places of defeat. We lay awake in our bed at night and we are thinking about how awful it is to be alone. How awful it is uh, that that our life has taken this turn. We, We think about those places of defeat, kitchen tables where we have heard, I'm leaving, I'm had enough. We think about break rooms where we have heard there are layoffs coming. We even think about churches where we have come in and they've become places of defeat and we drive by them and we think of division and we think of conflict. I have a friend whose mother died of cancer three weeks ago. Monday was her first day back at work. She's a nurse. She had to go back to the same hospital that her mother died in. She said, I can't do this. And many of us have experienced the same thing in our own life. We think about those places of defeat. And why has God brought us there? So that we would be defeated? No, like Israel. We would go to war with the enemies of God, trusting the Lord for victory. Like Jesus, we would trust not my will, but thy will be done. The enemies don't always have a face, do they? Sometimes the enemy's face is the one you stare at in the mirror. 
the one who is refusing to trust the Lord in the face of defeat and destruction. And there is a call for redemption in those places that you would trust the Lord. Like Israel, you would pray to the Lord. You would give your life over to the Lord. You would give this circumstance over to the Lord as an act of worship. Yes, there is death. Yes, there is despair. Yes, there is conflict. I'm going to trust the Lord in these moments, just like Israel, as an act of worship in the face of defeat. I'm going to serve when everything within me says I should isolate myself. When everything within me says I should move away from those people, I should move away from those circumstances. As an act of war against sin and unbelief, I'm going to trust the Lord and serve and sacrifice. Places of defeat become places of victory. But notice the text continues as we see this place of sin in the wilderness becomes a place of repentance. Notice from Mount Hor. Now remember just a few chapters ago what this place symbolized to the people of Israel. This is the mountain where Moses took Aaron up. He is stripped of his garments. He is laid to rest on Mount Hor. Defeat. They wept for 30 days, but notice where they head out to, by way of the Red Sea. What is that place to remind them of? The day when Moses raised his arm and the sea split in half and they walked through on dry land and Pharaoh's armies were crushed. Place of defeat, place of victory. Notice to go around the land of Edom. We remember in the last chapter, the king of Edom says, you're not coming through here. They come out in war against Israel and they have to go around to this place. Place of defeat, place of victory, place of defeat. And notice what happens to the people. They became impatient on the way. How scandalous is that? Walking by the Red Sea. Pointing over, that's where our grandparents walked through on dry land. That's where the chariots of Pharaoh floated to the top. That's where horses swam to the side. That's where a victory on our behalf by the power and authority of the Lord was accomplished. And instead of walking and remembering the, 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 the grace and mercy and victory of the Lord there, they are impatient. Instead of trusting the Lord, we do the same thing, right? On this side of a bloody cross, on this side of an empty tomb, What so often marks our life? Impatience. God, why are you doing it this way? God, why can't you give me more? But notice the same old story. We thought we were getting somewhere. Two steps forward, one step back. The people spoke against God. Notice the way it's described here. Just blatant sin. This is against God and Moses, the mediator. And what do they say? Again, why did you bring us out of Egypt? To die in the wilderness. We've heard all of this before. We were slaves in Egypt. Now we're in the wilderness. And notice how they they describe their state. There is no food and no water. 
You've brought us out here to starve us to death. You took us out of the orphanage and you've left us in the slums. You said you were going to be our father. We were going to be your son. But you've orphaned us again because there is no food and there is no water. And then they immediately turn around and say, what? We loathe this worthless food. I thought you said there was no food. Now, what we see going on here is the illogical way in which sin makes us act. Better put, sin makes you stupid, period. You don't see things logically. There is no food, but we hate the food that you gave us. The food here is described in the same way in the Old Testament. Idols are described. They are worthless. They have nothing in them. They are just pieces of wood. They don't provide for us. And they're saying to God, you have given us food, but it does nothing for us. It's not the food we want. I thought you said you didn't have no food. Sin makes you stupid. It's just like the man who sat across from me, who was leaving his family, who was getting a divorce, who was never coming back. And I asked him, I said, what about your kids? And he says, this has nothing to do with my kids. Sin makes you stupid. It's like the person who you're trying to minister to. And they said, I've had all of this going on in my life and and, and you haven't been there for me. And you say, I didn't know about it. And they say, do I have to tell you everything? Well, you got to tell me something. That makes no sense. Sin makes you stupid. When you become selfish, when you become fixated on yourself, you forget and you don't understand reality. Same thing is going on with Israel here. And what does God do? Then the Lord sent fiery serpents. Now, that's not a good thing. If you know Genesis 3, Satan takes the form of a snake. From the garden to Revelation, the evil takes the form of the beast, the snake, the dragon that's coming after the people of God. I even believe Jonah, the whale, was probably some sort of sea monster. Now, that's just my weird thing. It doesn't change any of my theology. I'm still a Baptist, just so you know. But I think that's very possible. Because the evil is represented by a serpent. And here there are these fiery dragons, fiery snakes. And we see in the Bible there has to be this natural aversion to snakes. A few weeks ago at our BFG, I'm I'm hearing about my son going out and grabbing a snake. Actually, the other night in a ball game, he's in the outfield and there's a snake crawling and he just picks it up and holds it. And people are like, oh, it was so cool. And I'm like, no. That's awful. You should hate snakes. And people who like snakes are weird. And if you come up to me afterwards and say, you got a pet snake, I'm still going to think you're weird. But you should hate snakes. You should be, there's this aversion biblically to snakes. They symbolize evil. And here we, we see the symbol The personification of sin and wickedness here is a snake. When your mascot is a snake, it's not good. If you've seen Karate Kid, you understand that. Some of you get that. But here, what God is showing the people, as these serpents come out, notice they bit the people, so many of Israel did what? They died. 
And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take the serpents from us. And what God is showing the people of Israel here with these snakes, he's saying, you want to go back to Egypt. I will show you what Egypt provides for you. The symbolism of the Pharaoh in Egypt is so often what? A snake. You want to go back to that snake? Here's what you get. Death. You're going to die. The snake can't provide for you. And here, instead of fighting against God, the people are doing what? They are repenting. And they said here, we have sinned against God. We have trusted the snake to provide for us. And we have come to realize that all the snake can provide for us is death, despair, destruction. And yet we have one walk on the scene who proves to us that it is better to trust the father instead of a Pharaoh. It's better to trust God instead of the snake. We get to Matthew chapter 5 and the text says that Jesus went out to the wilderness to what? To be tested by the devil. To be tested by the serpent. Now, sometimes we, don't, we, we try to figure out what's going on here. How do we resist temptation? Well, we've got to memorize all the Bible verses that Jesus memorized in the wilderness. And we've got to, we've got to be tough out in the wilderness. But the heart of what's going on with Jesus as after 40 days, Israel's in the wilderness, 40 years, he's what? He's hungry, the text says. And the test is, are you going to trust the snake to provide food for you? Or are you going to trust the father when he says, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word. Are you going to trust the snake to rescue you? Are you going to trust the snake to give you a kingdom? Or are you going to believe the Father has placed you there for the purpose of redemption? Are you going to trust and believe in the Father? And that is at the heart of all our sin. When you sin, just like the people, you're sinning against God by saying, I can provide better than God. When you try to sort out those problems and you try to, hey, I'm going to fix it myself. I, I, I'm going to manipulate. I'm going to deceive. I'm going to gossip. I'm going to slander. I'm going to try to dig in and fix this myself. What you are saying is the path that God has designed, even though it's difficult and even though there's suffering and even though there's conflict with others, I'm going to trust myself to deal with it instead of the Father in his wisdom. So many of us find ourselves in this same situation in the office. Are you going to trust the snake? Are you going to fudge the numbers? Uh, are you going to lie on the tax return? Are you going to trust the snake to provide for you? Or are you going to trust the Father? Are you going to rely on the Father? Because Jesus, after he walks out of the wilderness, after a victory over the Pharaoh behind the Pharaoh, over a victory over the serpent, he walks out and he turns to us and he says, listen, I want to tell you, I've been through the wilderness. God will provide for you clothes that you need. The Father will provide for you food that you need. He clothes birds and he clothes flat flowers and he will take care of you. And then he also says, if you ask for bread, 
God won't give you a stone. What does a stone symbolize? Pyramids in Egypt. You're not a slave. You're a son, and the Father will take care of you. And if you ask, he's not going to give you a serpent. If you find yourself in the wilderness, the issue is, who are you trusting to provide for you? Do you better trust a father instead of the Pharaoh? And sometimes it's the Pharaoh you look at in the mirror that you think will provide better than the Father in heaven. Notice the text continues, this place of sin becomes a place of confession and repentance. And then we see here, this place of death becomes a place of life. Notice they they go to Moses, and we see this so often. They are relying on Moses as their mediator, and they realize in and of themselves they have nothing to bring to God, and yet God has established this relationship, and they're depending on Moses, the prophet, the one so often they're complaining against, the one they're so often pushing away. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Now that's odd and that's weird and it doesn't make too much sense to us. There's this snake and there's this pole on Friday night, I I follow on Twitter. I don't know why I do this, but the Kentucky scanner, someone said I should follow them. It's really interesting, all the crazy things that go on. But at the airport, there was, at one of the terminals was a snake. And the, 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 throughout the airport, they're asking, they're, they're saying, there's this big snake at the Bluegrass Airport and we need a stick. Now, if we hear that, I'm thinking, get the stick and beat the snake to death. They're just trying to shoo the snake away back out into the field because he eats mice and all that. And all, all of that's just weird and spiritual warfare. You should stomp the head of the snake every time you have. But we probably weren't thinking, take the snick, stick and lift the snake up on the stick. And the people of Israel would think this was also strange and weird. We're going to go to the thing that has called us the mo- caused us the most pain, the most agony, and we're going to lift it up on a stick as if it's our flag, as if it's our banner. Notice the text continues. Everyone who is bidden shall look to it and live. The way that you live is you look to the thing that has caused you pain. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. I begin to think again, well, we've heard this story before. They come off the mountain and they have a cow made of gold and they're bowing down to it. Same things going on here. And yet this isn't an idol. God is calling them to lift up a banner, to lift up a flag that is to declare to them their pain and agony. And what he is saying here is this is what Pharaoh provides for you. Sin and death, and don't forget about it. Let's carry this pole throughout the wilderness toward the promised land so you never forget what your rebellion has caused. You look around and you see people puffed up and bloated from a snake bite. Many, the text says, died. 
There were funerals around people who had died after having been snake bitten. And you've gathered around loved ones and now you're going to put the enemy on a stick? And what God is saying here is, yeah, I'm the only one who can put your enemy's head on a stick. You have to trust me, and I don't want you to forget about it. And your greatest defeat I want you to carry throughout the wilderness because it symbolizes your greatest victory. And we read that and we say, that is weird and that is cultish, a bronze serpent on a pole. Who would ever think of that for salvation, for life? And yet Jesus turns to us and he says, just as Moses held up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he says to us, your only hope is a cursed cross of death, a Roman instrument of torture a place where people were taken outside of the city and left to suffocate on a trash heap. That's where you find victory in this place of defeat. That's where you find redemption. Now, we so often think of crosses as a decorative piece. We have to realize, and that's fine, you can have gold crosses and you can, we've got one in our church in Lexington, you can have all of that, but do understand what it symbolizes. It wasn't pretty in the first century. It was gory and it was nasty and it symbolized the scum of the earth, criminals. And what we are saying basically is an execution is our mascot. An execution is our logo. This place of defeat is our banner of hope. It's like the team who, who came out uh, of the locker room and, and the banner that they run through before they hit the field is we're losers. Losers. Winner with a line through it. We're going to lose this game. And you would say, that is just strange. That is just odd if you broke it down before the game and you said, let's lose on three. It makes no sense. And yet, as Christians, that's our, bad, that's our hope, is that we're losers. And what God says to us in the cross is, look where you lost. Look where you lost. That's where you died. Look at the cross and see the severity of your sin. You come, to the, you come to the cross and you have to come to terms with, that's what your sin caused. It's not pretty. It's not ornate. But it is your only hope. Realize, your sin took the most valuable being in the universe to pay for it. How bad am I? It took Jesus, the Son of God, lifted up to defeat my sin. Lifted up in death. That's how bad I am. And then in the cross, you also have to say, and yet that's how good God is. Because I couldn't do it myself. And he had to do it all. And so in the cross, you see how bad you are, but you see how good and glorious and gracious God is. And in that moment, you have to die. Because you have to admit how sinful you are 
and that you couldn't do it without God. Same thing the people of Israel are having to admit in the wilderness. This is what our sin caused. Sin causes death. And we can't get out of it unless God provides victory. Unless God lifts our enemy's head up on a stick. And so we will march out with our enemy head on a stick, realizing that our greatest enemy is so often not just a Pharaoh, but ourself. And in the cross of Christ, you see yourself crucified. That's why Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer the life that I live, but the life he lives through me by faith. What is he saying there? In light of the cross, I'm a dead man. In light of the cross, I can't provide for myself. In light of the cross, I have to trust God. And everything I do, even the Apostle Paul, who would stand up and preach the gospel to the nations, he would always remember, yeah, I used to kill Christians. And it's only by the grace of God that I have the opportunity to do this. Why? Because the man that I once was has been killed, has been hung. In the cross, we see... The world's greatest defeat and the Son of God's greatest victory. In the cross, we see our enemy's head on a stick as our king's body is lifeless and dead as a corpse taken to the grave. The wonderful thing about the book or the gospel of John is this idea of being lifted up doesn't just symbolize the bloody cross. The idea, if you read the book of John and you hear Jesus saying the Son of, God, Son of Man must be lifted up and lifted up and lifted up. And finally, we get to the end of the book of John and we realize that being lifted up means being lifted up in victory. And in the cross, as he is lifted up in victory, we see through the cross to an empty tomb, to a place where... There was a dead body to a place where rigor mortis was beginning to set in and bones were stiffening and muscles were tightening and there was no life in this hole in the ground. And all of the sudden, eyelids began to flicker. A heart began to pump and brainwaves started moving and there was one who was lifted up in defeat who took in air and got up and walked out of the hole in the ground. And he says to you and me, the cross is your victory. Why? The cross paid for your sin. And in allowing Satan to defeat him, he was defeating Satan for you. In allowing sin and death to overcome him, he was defeating sin and death for you. And there is a resurrection and there is an ascension that proves to you your enemy is dead. His head has been pierced through his head has been crushed and you look at the cross and you see defeat but in defeat you see victory it's your only hope many of you have driven by this very place your whole life talk to people in richmond and what do you do well i'm a pastor what church ashland 
in Madison County. It's Ashland Avenue Baptist Church, and we're a campus, and, you know, it's hard. It's, just realize this. We meet on South Keeneland. Come join us. What denomination? We're Baptist. Well, where are you located? We're located between the liquor store and now the tattoo parlor. Oh, yeah, I know that place. It used to be AT&T building. Oh, yeah, the boot store. And they began to say, oh, the, yeah, 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 I know where you meet. This place could have a lot of things to you. Some of you go, I bought some fireworks here on the 4th of July a few years ago. And yet today, this place that's probably meaningless could be a place of redemption. And you may never drive by it the same again. And you say, until that moment, the gospel never made sense to me. Until that moment, I was living for myself. I was immersed in a career. I was trying to solve all of my problems myself. I was trying to figure it out. And I drove by that place and I stopped in that place and I worshiped with those people. And I sung about this wonderful cross of defeat. And I realized my only hope was to be defeated. And that day became a day of redemption for me. You may never come back, but you may never drive by here the same again. Only in Christ, your garden of Gethsemane, today could be thy will be done. Your wilderness could be the Father provides. Your cross could be it is finished. In Christ today, your tomb, your grave, your coffin could be he is risen. But only in Christ. If you leave here today trusting in yourself, you will be the enemy whose head will be on a stick forever. But if you leave here today, you can never be defeated in Christ because in Him, you've already died. And that's when this place becomes a place of redemption.